All right, time for kids to come on up front. Come on up, guys. Find somewhere to sit. All right, good to see everyone again this morning. Glad to have you here. All right, so I have a question for you as we start. How many of you have perfect parents? Do you have parents who do everything perfect in every way all the time? Yeah, yeah some of you think so, but l- should I break it to them or not? You know what? Nobody's perfect, are they? Not even parents are perfect. Sometimes they might seem perfect to us, but they still have mistakes and times that they sin. They're so they're not perfect either. So, but let's think about that. Can God use parents who are not perfect even for his purposes? Can God still use them? Can God still use imperfect parents in your lives to bless you? Yeah, yeah he can. And the Bible tells us actually that's a tremendous blessing to grow up in a Christian household and with Christian parents. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So this tells us that, first of all, God is faithful. He's faithful to all his promises, right? He's unchanging. And then that the promises of God and his great love are not just for parents who follow Jesus, but they're also for their kids and grandkids, the generations that come after them. So let's think about that a little bit. Let's think about some of the blessings that come with having one or more parents who follow Jesus. First, you have somebody to bring you to church and worship God with other believers, right? That's a great blessing. You have someone to teach you songs of praise to God. Yeah, you have somebody who can read you the Bible and help help teach you Scripture. That's a great blessing. You have somebody who can pray for you. That's wonderful. You have somebody to show you what it looks like to follow Jesus, right? Those are all tremendous blessings of having a Christian parent who follows Jesus. Now, think about this. If you have a parent who is following Jesus, does that mean that you don't need to follow Jesus for yourself? Does that mean that you're automatically saved from your sin because you have a Christian parent? No, it doesn't. You still need to have faith in Jesus yourself. You need to trust in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin and for you to have eternal life. You can't just rely on the faith of your parents. You need to be seeking after God for yourself. And so if you have one or more parents who are following Jesus, that is a tremendous blessing and something you should be very thankful for and something you can even thank God for. You have two of them. That's even better. It's great to have Christian parents who are following Jesus. What a great blessing. Thanks for coming up, everybody. You can go back and have a seat. Thanks, Pastor Jeff and Keith and others. We are in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Hi, Nora. First uh, Corinthians seven, ten to sixteen. Was that a setup of some? Did you guys tell her to do that? No. All right, all right. Good job, Nora. 
All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16. Hey, Lynn, how are you? Good. Something strange is happening here this morning. That's good because this sermon is hard, and so we'll start a little light. How about that? <laughs> All right, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16. I read this morning from Psalm 27. Um, I, I'm a little behind in the Bible reading program. I hope that gives you guys some encouragement for those of you who are behind in your Bible reading. Again, don't think about Bible reading as like you have to stay up. Think of Bible reading like meals. If you miss a meal, you can't make up for it. And if you miss breakfast and lunch, you can't. I mean, you can. But you don't eat breakfast and lunch and dinner all at dinner. You just eat dinner. And so if you miss a couple days of reading, don't, don't try to eat those meals too and then the next one. Just eat the next one. Check off the boxes you didn't read. God is not displeased with you. It's okay. All right, so, but I read uh, Psalm 27 this morning, and it said, uh, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me upon a high rock. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I needed that psalm this morning because this text is very difficult. Uh, I fear what you guys think often too much, and I wanted to fear God, and that text is helpful. So our text this morning, as all of chapter 7 is, is about marriage. Our text in particular is about divorce and remarriage. And so our, it, it is God's holy and inspired word. It does not fail. It's very clear, and so there's no dancing around it. And so my prayer is that God would give us ears to hear it this morning and faith to submit to it. Uh, so here's 1 Corinthians seven ten to 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is, not an, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. <clears throat> I pray... Uh, as always, for faith to receive your word as it is, your holy, eternal, inspired, unfailing, potent word. And so God, be gracious to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here that uh, Paul first in verses 10 11 is talking to two spouses who are both believers. And then verses 12 to 16, he's talking to a believing spouse who's married to an unbelieving spouse. To believing spouses, he says, no separation, no divorce. 
to a believing spouse and an unbelieving uh, spouse. He says, no divorce if the unbelieving spouse is pleased to remain in the marriage. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to go, let him or her go. You're not enslaved. You're free uh, and you can remarry. <clears throat> now, one of the things to do with this is uh, to take care for those of you here who have been married to the same spouse um, for your entire life, at least thus far. You haven't separated. You haven't divorced. Um, you may have had moments where you've thought about it. But on the whole, you've had, a, as far as others can tell, a pretty good marriage. Um, and uh, so you might face some temptation here to look down on others who haven't. I just want to start there. Take care. <clears throat> you do not see the stuff that I see in my office. You do not know what people have endured. And so be really careful of looking down your nose at anybody this morning. Um, one way to do that is to remember that your righteousness is in Jesus alone and not in the quality of your marriage. And so let's start there. <clears throat> okay. If you can start there, you'll be a help to those who are in difficult marriages and not a hindrance. Right? So let's do away with any self-righteousness, any holier than thouness anything like that. There shouldn't be any haughtiness. You know how difficult is marriage and a good marriage. Um, so Christ is our righteousness, not our marriage. Let me deal with next this. You'll see in verses 10 and 12, uh, two parentheses. Not I, but the Lord in verse 10, and I, not the Lord in Verse 12, what is Paul saying there? So again, Paul in those first two verses, verse 10 and 11, is talking to two married believers, a man and a woman who both believe, and he's going to repeat what Jesus says, as we see in like recorded in Matthew 5 and 19. So he says, to the married, I give this charge. And he's saying, not I, but the Lord. And then verse 12, to the rest, that is, to those to whom that doesn't apply, to those married to an unbeliever, I, not the Lord, say. What does that mean? Is Paul saying that what Jesus says is kind of scripture, and then kind of what I say isn't on par with what Jesus says, but it's still pretty good. That's how some take this. Um, it's not at all. Paul is just simply reminding us that his teaching in verses 10 and 11 is, when, is just simply restating that what Jesus said on earth about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And then... When Jesus was on earth, since he was mainly just speaking to believing Jews, he wasn't speaking to Gentiles where the gospel had come and the wife gets saved and not the husband, or the husband gets saved and not the wife. Jesus wasn't dealing with that situation. And so now Paul is saying, now that the gospel has come to Corinth, it's not just talking to believing Jews, and now we have a different situation. This is what Jesus would say if he was here. Jesus is now saying, if you'd like to put it that way. So don't, don't pit Paul against Jesus or Jesus against Paul here. If you want to just put it this way, to the married, Jesus says, but to the rest, Jesus now says. That's how we should be taking this. Why bring this up? 
Well, it, I'd assume this raises a question in your mind what those two parentheses mean. So I wanted to cover that. But second, it is really cool in our day to pit Paul against Jesus, to deny Paul's teaching and just want to go with the red letter. That's something in the church today. It's in our church. We had someone leave because he doesn't like what Paul says and thinks that pure Christianity is just what Jesus says. And I told him, you can't say that in being a Christian, and so he left. So we have this stuff in our church, this hooey of denying that all scriptures breathed out by God. And so I want to warn you against such foolishness and wickedness. The kind of humorous thing is it was once cool to deny the Old Testament. That, that was the stuff we didn't like, but what Paul and Jesus says is cool. But now it's cooler to deny what Paul says. Why? Because Paul says stuff like this. And we don't like Paul. Paul says really hard things. But we have to keep in front of us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired as the authority for all of our life. We are never given the right or authority to pit one part of Scripture against another. We can't pick and choose. It's all or nothing. Jesus spoke it all by his Holy Spirit, through his prophets and apostles, all of God's word, all of 66 books, every word is from God through inspired prophets and apostles by the Holy Spirit, and we are to receive it by faith as the eternally inspired very words of God now. This means, by the way, that as I am preaching God's word, God himself is here speaking to you. That doesn't say anything about me or my goodness or my perfection. It's just the simple authority that God has given in the church that when his word is being preached, you are hearing from God himself and you're to take it like that. Okay? That might sound arrogant to you. You might think less of me. So be it. It's the truth. And I could couch it in all ways of trying to get you to like me and still receive the authority, but that would just be to cover my behind, and I don't need to do that, do I? This is God's word. So I urge you to take it as that. God himself is here preaching through me a fallible nothing his eternally inspired word for your eternal good. The Father who did all that we just sung in his Son is speaking his word to you through his Spirit. Will you receive it as such or won't you? This is God's word, brothers and sisters. Now in our day, we wrestle, struggle to believe that this is God's word because we believe science is infallible, right? Remember the Muppets? Was it the Muppets? Science. Was that the Muppets? I just thought of that. Was it? Yeah. Who was it? Was it that uh, American Eagle guy? Yeah. Sam, yeah, yeah. Science. I uh, recently watched an interview. I I couldn't think of his name this morning. I didn't have time to Google it. Uh, He's a Christian scientist who has written persuasively against Darwin. I think it's the Darwin's black box guy. Um, and he was in an interview, being interviewed along with two other 
won the head, I believe he's the physicist at Harvard, and won the head of a certain math department at Harvard who had recently both come out very publicly about that recent modern findings in science have totally discredited Darwinism. These two other guys are not Christians. They have no Christian commitments. They're actually pretty antithetical to Christianity, opposed to it. But they had both honestly come out and said, you cannot believe Darwinism anymore. You can't believe evolution is wrong. They're just getting destroyed for it. Because they're committing a sin in the world. You cannot critique science. Any of you have followed any of the global warming stuff? If you go back to the 70s, it was the next glacial age is coming. And so young people, science is a religion with their priests who speak the infallible doctrine of science until it's proven wrong in a decade and we're too short-minded to remember. Science is not fallible. Or science is fallible. It's not infallible. God's word is infallible. If God says it, we should have no problem with it. That's what we as Christians hold to. If it's in the Bible, we don't have any problem with it. That's what we want to do. So what do our verses say? Paul begins, as I said, addressing two married believers. And he is pointing us back to what Jesus said. If you want to look at them for yourself, Matthew 5, 32 Matthew 19, 9 is the main, but around there. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not separate from his wife. So what we're talking about here is conflict in marriage. Conflict in marriage. Paul is entering into the conflicts in the marriages in Corinth. And now we are here entering into the conflicts in the marriages, in Pine Grove, what do we do? You are not to separate, and you are not to divorce. That's what you should not do. That's it. It doesn't matter. You'll notice there's no nuances here. There's not ten exceptions. Paul says to the wives... You're never to separate from your believing husband. He looks at the husbands and says, you are never to divorce from your wives. Now you'll notice he does have a parenthesis there after the wife. But if she does, that if her marriage is so miserable to her, her husband stinks too much or drinks too much or whatever, and she does separate, that's one wrong thing. She's not to do a second wrong thing. By marrying somebody else. Her only recourse to marriage is to reconcile with her husband and live with him again. Right? So, it's not marriage until you're sick of it. It's not marriage until you lost that loving feeling. It's not marriage until your nosy sister, aunt, or buddy, or dad says, just be done with it. 
at every marriage, every Christian marriage, we say, what God has joined together, let no man, and man there means man and woman, what God has joined together, please hear that. We just pass it by in the wedding ceremony, don't we? Who's joining the man and the woman? It's, it's not me. It's not you. It's definitely not the state of Wisconsin. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you think that God in heaven looks kindly on all of our separations and divorces? That he is not wholly enraged with the church for all of its separations and divorces. And we do nothing about it. So you may have questions coming up. What about, what if, well, this is the bottom line. Wife should not separate from her husband. Her husband should not divorce his wife. Let me say something here. If you have at all been involved in any kind of marriage counseling or helping people are married, uh, pastors and elders, this is, I don't know what percent. It's way over 50% of our stuff we deal with is marriage. I got to believe it's like 80, 90% of any kind of trouble we're working through for any length of time is related to marriage issues. The problem is, when people come to us, it's too late. It's way, way too late. There's so much pride, so much wanting to maintain appearances, so much lying to yourself that you don't want to bring up what your spouse is doing, you want to protect the kids, and on and on and on, that when you come after decades of it, it's too late. You want help, you want a miracle. The simple reality is you waited about 10 years too long. Rather than in year one of your marriage or year two and you began to see this pattern and you should have come to those God has given you for help, you didn't. And then when you do, there's just nothing to be done anymore except to say, stick it out. And so why do I bring that up? Please come. For goodness sakes, just lay down your pride. Lay down wanting to maintain the appearance of a good marriage. And please come and tell me or Pastor Jeff or one of the elders or somebody else that you know will come and tell us on your behalf because you're too embarrassed. And please, for God's sake, get some help. I can't help but think this wife in verse 11 who does separate wouldn't have if she would have come 10 years before that. Too many times what I've seen in marriages are wives who are miserable in their marriage but they're putting on a happy face. A few people know but not many. She gets to the point of can't handling anymore. And so she comes, but it's done. Right? And then she says, but I just wanted to protect the kids. I wanted to protect my husband. And lovingly, ladies, it's not true. You're protecting the wrong person. You're protecting the reputation. You're protecting the husband's sin. You're not actually protecting the kids. 
You're not actually protecting your husband's reputation. I know this is the hardest thing in the world to ask you to do. It is not submitting to your husband to not go and let his sin be known to the elders. You need to come. And it might be the opposite way. Bring it into the light. If you ask your spouse, we need some help, and he or she refuses, that is all the indication you need that there is desperate need for help. So wives, if your husband is just run-of-the-mill harsh with you, and he is asking for your forgiveness and then doing it again, and asking for your forgiveness and doing it again, you should tell him, you have a week to go tell the elders, and, and then if you don't, I am. Okay. That's going to feel very yucky to you, and like you're being a rebellious wife, you aren't. You're being godly. If your husband has been abusive, lightly, verbally, or just loveless, just, you know, you didn't get anything on Valentine's Day. Or... I'm being serious here. Like, if, you, if, if your husband just doesn't love you well, you're married and he provides, and, but there's not tenderness. There hasn't been a kind word hardly, a, a thanks, a, a hug, a, a date night a kind note, if that's not happening, because your husband is to love you as Christ loves the church, if that isn't happening, he confesses Jesus, then you tell him, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, but you don't love me well. And we need help. Would you go ask for it? And if he doesn't, then you tell him, I'm going. Because this isn't right. I'm sick of settling for a mediocre marriage. It might be the other way around. You have a wife who just nags you. And she just won't let it go about everything. And you've just given up the fight. You don't say boo anymore because you don't rock the boat anymore because you've tried it for 10 years and it just leads to more fights and you just don't want to deal with it. So you just endure it. You should lovingly rebuke your wife tenderly. You should check the plank in your own eye. You should say, we need help. And if she's refusing, then you should come get it. If your husband or your wife is refusing sex, talked about this last week, you should get some help. Have the faith to use the good gifts that God has given you in the church of your elders and your pastors. Now, to my elders and pastors' brothers, we need to do a much better job at getting into this muck and mess. We need to go after these folks. We need to be asking our brothers and sisters in our church, and, and you godly Titus II kind of women need to be as well, asking questions about how marriages are going. You've all been married. You know what they're like. It's hard. It's pretty quiet in here. This is true, isn't it? You want to go to a church where this stuff is never brought up? Hmm? You want to endure for 30 years in a mediocre marriage and never have pastors and elders or people in a church who love you at all or fear God at all and say anything? Huh? 
I hope some of you are really uncomfortable right now because your wife is going to make a phone call tomorrow. And you better not dissuade her. And I hope some of you wives are very uncomfortable right now because your husband needs to make a phone call, and I hope you encourage him to do it. Because our marriages are supposed to glorify God. It's not about us. Right? And we're Christians, aren't we? We're done playing. We have Christ's righteousness, and we're not going to live it like, like the world. We're not going to live like we have. Because we actually confess Jesus is Lord. Right? Okay? If you don't want a church that's going to, if you want to be in a church that isn't going to deal with your sin, this is not the church for you. I mean that in love. Okay? There's plenty of places you can go and do whatever you want and never get told no. I don't want this to be that kind of place. Because that's unloving. And it does not glorify God. Paul then, in verse 12, says, to the rest. Not I, I, not the Lord. That is, now he's addressing marriages in Corinth that Jesus didn't have to address in Israel, where you have a believer married to an unbeliever. If any brother has a wife who is unbeliever, an unbeliever, or if any woman has a husband who is unbeliever. All right. First, God unites a man and a woman as one flesh. The relation between a husband and wife is so close that each is the half of other of the other. John Calvin says they are one flesh. So throughout the Old Testament, I don't have time to take you there, but throughout the Old Testament, God's people are repeatedly warned to never marry from the surrounding nations or they will be defiled by the idolatry of those nations. So if the believing Jew saw a pretty Canaanite woman, he should refuse to pursue a marriage or her idolatries, her uncleanness would taint his cleanness before the Lord. If you know the Bible at all, you're very familiar with this. Over and over and over again, the believers were to fear God and not marry unless they, and it is not that, and not marry from the surrounding nations or they would get tainted. They would get unclean from them. Now, it's exactly the opposite. Eh? In the Old Covenant, I'll get there, just hang with me here. The fear that Paul's addressing here is when the gospel comes to Corinth and the husband's converted and not the wife, or the wife's converted and not the wife, and they read, start reading the Old Testament, and then they go, oh my gosh, I'm married to a Canaanite. I'm married to an unbeliever. I'm, I'm going to be negatively affected. Like God says in the Old Testament, my children are going to be tainted. They're going to be unclean. I should divorce. That's what Paul's addressing here. Okay? That's what Paul's addressing here. He says, 
if you're married to an unbeliever and he or she consents, that word consent there is like, in the Greek, like, pleased to be with you. They still want to be in the marriage. They don't mind your wax so much, Christian piety. It's not a crimp on their lifestyle so much, and they don't mind your worshiping at church and giving tithes. And so they're pleased to remain in your marriage, should not divorce. Why? Verse 14. The new covenant reverses the flow. <laughs> the gospel protects the believer, and far from being unclean with the uncleanness of the unbeliever, the unbeliever is made holy. The children are made holy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, of course, saved. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse or children are automatically saved by the kind of surrogate faith of the believing one. It's been said over and over and over again in many churches, God has no grandchildren. What does that mean? It means God only adopts children. Like you, you can't become a, a grandchild of God through the faith of your parent. God adopts you directly. You have to have your own faith. You can't ride into the kingdom of God on the coattails of your believing spouse's faith or your believing parents' faith. Neither did this contradict what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that by nature all are born children of wrath. That is, little children born into the home of at least one believer, maybe two, are not automatically saved. They aren't born without the nature of corruption and sin. What is Paul meaning here? It's just what Pastor Jeff said in the children's sermon. If you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ and you came to faith after marrying and your spouse does not share your faith but has rejected Jesus, you, you should take care, but you're not going to automatically like be unclean. It's just the other way. God in some way the word holy here is the same word as sanctified, set apart. There is some set-apartedness towards holiness, a protection for you from your unbelieving spouse and your children as well. Another way to say it is God loves to bless believers. And these blessings, though not saving of themselves, are shared by your unbelieving spouse and definitely by your children. So you shouldn't divorce. There's much more to say on it. I just don't have time. Paul does then give an exception in verse 15. But if your unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. You were called to peace. You're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So you you come to faith in your marriage, your spouse doesn't share that faith, and after some time, he or she doesn't want to remain in a marriage with a believer. 
and I, Paul is saying this very simply without much explanation, but this is very painful. This is not easy. But you don't have to fight for the marriage. You don't have to hold on tight. You don't have to, God here allows the freedom of divorce. Now you'll notice here that this isn't the believer initiating the divorce. Paul says just the opposite before that. If he or she is pleased to remain in the marriage, you should not divorce. <clears throat> but if the unbelieving person is no longer pleased to remain in the marriage and wants out, you are not enslaved. That means you would be free to be divorced and to remarry. It is as if you were never married. God provides you that freedom. Sometimes what does happen in marriages, <clears throat> uh, you have two people in a church, both confessing that they love Jesus. And one of the partner, one of the spouses, just gets into sin. Who knows what? Anything. And uh, we as elders, pastors, should get involved in that sin. And it may come over a period of time and unrepentance. We're probably talking years. It's not weeks. It might be months, but it's probably years. Where the sinning spouse is just being unrepentant. And we, we would remove him or her from membership. We would excommunicate him or her. They are, for all intents and purposes, an unbeliever. This would apply then there. Okay. This could apply then. The freedom for divorce and to remarry. In all other cases where there is unbiblical divorce, there is no allowance for remarriage. I know we could get into hundreds and hundreds of exceptions and cases, but let's just take what he's saying here as it is. Again, always, if there's more that you want to talk about in this, please do it. Now, the believer in this case may be the one who actually has to file for divorce. We see this all the time in marriage counseling where the sinning spouse has totally abandoned the marriage, but he or she is so cowardly as to not actually divorce the person. They just leave them sitting there for years. It's really wicked. It really is. I don't know why people do this. I think it's because then they can say to other people, I didn't divorce, I didn't do it. I left the marriage. I had the boyfriend or girlfriend. I abandoned, but I didn't divorce her. It's really pathetic. It really, really makes me mad. And so the innocent believing spouse may actually have to go and file for divorce. But I tell people this, the sinning spouse has divorced you. They just don't have the guts to legalize it. So that may have to happen. But, what I want to urge you in this text from that is just please, husbands, love your wives. Like, I don't mean just tell them you love them, although that's good. You should do that. Tell your wife you love her. I mean, do loving things. Do tender things. Get to know your wife. Talk with her and listen to all the details that 
you know you don't need and don't matter, act like you care. Like, listen. Leave her notes. Buy her things. Encourage her. A godly wife is to be praised. Praise her with your words. Learn how to love your wife. Wives, please, please, please respect your husbands. Honor them. Don't nag. Don't belittle. Don't speak ill of your husband to other women or men. Respect your husband. Now notice I didn't say don't disrespect him. There's a difference between not disrespecting and respecting. Yes, don't disrespect him, but go further. Respect him. Talk to him about how much you respect him. Tell him. There's no such thing as divorce-proofing your marriage, but that'll divorce-proof your marriage. All right, a couple closing things. I I know it's going long. I could turn this into two sermons, but I I think it's better. Let's just move this text over with. There is a great need in the church for discipline on these issues. The church in America is so pathetically weak because we will never say no or deal with any of these things. We just let them go. And so here I'm talking to us as elders and our wives, deacons and your wives, and especially other Titus II kind of women. We need you in the church to be addressing young men and women and other men and women in the church and rebuking them. You know that word's used in the Bible all the time? Exhorting them, warning them with tears over months. You know, you know the reason why we don't, right? Because we fear people more than we fear God. That, that's it. And we don't love them. We don't. Second, take real care in giving marriage advice. If you aren't willing to say what Paul here says in marriage, don't say anything. You better know the biblical teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage before you dare to speak about advice and what whoever's coming to you is going on. Like, take real care here. We as elders hear not infrequently of awful marriage advice being given. So just give advice, but do it from Scripture. Empathize, pray, weep, invite over for meals. I mean, show great care but take great care not to flatter. The simplest principle to keep in mind in Scripture is one side will seem right until you hear the other. Never, ever, ever take what one spouse says as the truth. Okay? Ever. It may be a really close friend or a family member, but they lie all the time in marriage. I mean, you just got to take it for granted that the person coming to you is, is lying to you. They're always making it seem like they didn't do anything wrong and the other person did it all wrong. It's just lying. 
and any half-witted marriage counselor knows it. And so just be really careful there. Second, we saw, or we, if you look at 2 Corinthians 6, 14, don't have time now. You as a believer should never consider dating or marrying an unbeliever. You should never, when Paul is writing here about a, a, a believer married to an unbeliever, he, he's not saying believers who married unbelievers. He's saying two unbelievers who were married together and one became a believer. Christians are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that means dating. The only reason you date is to get married. There's just no... If you want the companionship of marriage, then there needs to be a ring involved. And, and there can't be a ring involved. It's an unbeliever. The Bible soundly, clearly says you may not do that as a believer. Now, you may do it, but you're just showing that you're not a Christian. And you do not know the misery that is going to come into your life because of that decision. Especially when you start having children. What does darkness have to do with light, Paul says in Second Corinthians? What does righteousness have to do with unrighteousness? What do you, who give full allegiance to Jesus Christ, have to do with somebody who is in utter enmity with him? Christians are not to date or marry non-Christians. Lastly, as I said earlier, please don't settle for mediocre marriages. Now, in one sense, there is only mediocre marriages. <laughs> right. There's no such thing as like super blissful, happy all the time marriages. I mean, it's just insufferable to be around people who act like that. Right. Hey, there's only mediocre marriages. My mom's here. Her, my mom and dad had a great marriage, but it was, I mean, yeah. But just don't let unchecked sin keep going. Just get some help. We just have to put down our pride, put down our need to appear right. You as a wife crave to be loved, but maybe just given up hope. You as a husband deeply want to be respected, particularly in front of the kids, and you, but you've just stopped fighting. Just don't settle for that. That's not a good marriage doesn't glorify God like we should. It shouldn't be okay. Is that how Jesus loves the church? All right. Men, you're supposed to love your wife like Christ loves the church. The church is supposed to respect her husband, honor him, obey him. That, that's your cue as a wife. One of you has to start doing it. Wife, if you're in a marriage with a husband who doesn't love you like he should, just start respecting him. Look at the log in your own eye first. Take the first step. He should, but you might have to. Husband, if you're in a marriage with a wife who is disrespectful and does not honor you, does not respect, start loving her. Take the first step. Don't do tit for tat. Love her. No, no, no excuses. It, it, it'll, it'll almost always start with repentance. Probably what you'll need to do after this sermon is take a day or two maybe to think 
and then go to your husband or wife and just simply say, for all of my lack of love, the harsh things I've said, and be specific, please forgive me. No excuses, no reasons, just own it. For all of my lack of respect, for all of the little jabs, for all of the nagging, and be specific, husband, please forgive me. Just start there and then come and get some help. Let me close just simply like this. The word of God is very, very good to us. It it gives us help. It doesn't leave us in mediocrity. and it, It instructs us very carefully and specifically. And I just want to encourage you, love God for his word. Is this not good of him to give us this? Isn't this right, pure? Wouldn't it be awesome to take these words and live them? What what would our lives be like? He is teaching us how to be his children. He is tender and yet strong as our father. He means to forgive where we fail. But it starts with believing his word. It starts with seeing how good it is. Let's pray. Father, please help us now. What we need more than anything is faith that you are our Father, that you forgive, that you fix what is broken, but it doesn't come except by us humbling ourselves. And so, God, may we humble ourselves before your word. May we bow the knee before you. May we repent and get the help that is needed. And so, God, give us faith for this. And so, God, we ask for this even now. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Um, Pray, right? Ask God for help. May God bless you and keep you. May God make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.